Welcome to Continuous Dream. Today, Part 1, Chapters 9 and 10 of Kells, The Gospel of Columba, a novel by Amy Kreider. Part 1, read by Jeff Breitman. Chapter 9 Edith There were places I could be alone. Behind the monastery was the steep hill, called Dun E, which I would often hike. Near the top was a little hollow from which the monastery could not be seen. I would sit in it facing the western sea where the ocean rolled on to the end of the world. Only the legendary lands of St. Brendan's voyage were beyond that horizon. Una had loved the story of St. Brendan, and listened to it with pleasure every time I told it. To the north were tinier hermitages, Tyree and Cole, islands remote and barren but for the clash of thousands of birds. I wondered if I should retire there and get farther away from faces, from eyes glowing under brows, furrowed from exhaustion, and smiles beatific and certain. Perhaps go to a solitary island completely alone, living on crabs and snared gannets. Then I walked back down, with my hands clasped before my chest. Through the early morning mist before prime, the weak winter sun barely risen over the Isle of Mull across the Sound. I took the road from the cemetery down to the Bay of the Dead, past the many crosses and the few small buildings, the field of winter wheat, and meadows of drying brown-headed flowers. The beach was faintly red in the sunrise. The gentle tide, a quiet hush. The silence was broken by the piercing song of a red shank wading nearby, and I turned my head toward the bird hopping on its thin orange legs. It raised its long curved beak and cried again. I lifted my gaze. Something dark was out in the waves, rolling with the tide. A seal. I thought. It bobbed and tumbled, inching closer toward the rocks. It did not seem to be swimming, but floating and rolling in the water. I wondered if the seal were dead. A larger wave turned it over. A flash of pale skin. An arm. A bare foot. I ran to the brown boulders that made a natural jetty and climbed over the rocks, not thinking. Time seemed to slow down. I could see every crevice to avoid, every tangle of seaweed as I raced, not feeling the speed. A white face loomed below. I waded in among the uneven rocks, and a heavy wave pulled the body back as I reached for her hand. She was tangled in seaweed. I grasped the seaweed and pulled. 
The heavy weight of the creature surprised me, and I slipped, fallen backward in the frigid water. I struggled in my soaked woolen robes, blinded by the wave, losing sight of her. I pushed through the water to the mass of seaweed rolling out of my reach. Stumbling over the rocks, I grabbed the slimy seaweed, pulling and pulling through the white foam as salt spray splashed into my panting mouth. I lifted her up and carried her to the beach to lay her down. Something swung from her wet clothes. She was a girl of about Deirdre's age, her long red hair tangled in a mass around her head, her cheek bruised from the rocks, her lips grey. I pulled the seaweed from around her and put my head on her chest. There was a rasp. She was alive. I tried to lift her, to turn her over again. There was a weight that surprised me now that she was no longer bound in the seaweed. I lay her back down and felt her waist. Her linen apron was knotted with rocks, the swollen knots too hard to untie. I yanked the apron off over her head. Turning her over in a crouch, I pushed my fists against her stomach in three quick hard thrusts. She coughed and retched, her little body shaken. I turned her over again and rubbed her hands and legs vigorously, but she remained still, and I picked her up and carried her to the guest house, meeting Kayla on the way. Fetch the doctor! Kayla didn't ask questions and went quickly. In the guest house, I laid the girl on the mattress and stoked the fire high, slid a pillow under her head, and laid a blanket over her. The doctor, Brother Kay, came in with strong-smelling herbs. He waved them under her nose, and she began to cough violently. When she tried to sit up, the doctor held her and gently eased her back. Her thin face was ashen. Brother Kay threw some herbs on the fire, and their scent filled the air. The girl coughed for a while, then finally stopped, and the doctor brought her a cup of water. What happened, Edith? he asked her. She sipped the water, staring at the fire, her blue eyes reflecting the sparks. She didn't answer. You fell in? The doctor continued. She slowly nodded. I must have. I don't remember. I wondered when and if I should say something about the stones in her apron, but I felt now was not the time. You're from the Island of Women? I asked. She nodded. The doctor said, She's Brother Jeremiah's niece. She looked up at us with worried eyes. What will you say? The doctor stroked her hand. What is there to tell? You fell into the tide. We'll take you back to the island as soon as you're well. 
Gwyn must be worried sick for you. Edith started crying. I didn't think, she said, between heavy breaths. Quiet now, the doctor said. You'll be fine. We must go and tell the abbot and get you some hot milk. You'll be home to your mother in no time. Kayla was waiting outside as I left Edith with the doctor, and I told him to fetch hot milk. I went to the abbot's house and knocked. Jeremiah came out. A girl from the other island washed ashore, nearly drowned. Edith, your niece. Jeremiah cocked his head in bafflement. I've never heard of such a thing. Is the doctor tending to her? Is she all right? Yes. I'd like to go along when they take her back to her home. He frowned. I'll tell the abbot. I'm sure that will do. Father Bracel's niece Morgan is in charge there. I returned to the guest house, meeting Kayla with a jug of milk outside. What happened? Kayla asked. I said, something strange, a mystery. Was the devil involved in this? He asked. I think perhaps he was. I will pray for her. So will I. I took the jug and went in. The doctor was stoking the fire as Edith lay still, her eyes open. I brought her the milk and she sat up. I'm going to fetch some more herbs to throw on the fire. They will clear her lungs, the doctor said. Rest, my dear. He left, and I sat beside Edith while she sipped the warm milk. She looked at me awkwardly. Did you speak with my uncle? Yes. What did you tell him? I folded my arms and leaned toward her. What should I tell him? Tears slipped from her eyes. What did you say? That you fell in the tide. But for your soul, she put her hands over her face, trembling. Please don't tell him. His way to heal my sin will be to punish me. And for my mother, I couldn't bear anyone to know. Forgive me. Forgive me. She cried into her hands. I sat on the edge of the bed and put my hands on her shoulders. I don't know what is best. There was a time when I thought I always knew what was right. Now I don't. So I won't tell for now. Calm yourself. Be easy. She grabbed my hands and pressed them against her cheeks. Oh, thank you. Thank you. What is your name? Brother Conochtoch. Oh, thank you, dear Brother Toch. The bell was struck for prime, and I smoothed her cheeks, wiping her tears on my sleeve. Rest. Will you be ready to return this afternoon? Yes, 
I think so. I had better prepare myself. She sat up and rubbed her head. Yes, prepare yourself and be strong. Thank you. I got up and went to the church for prime. As I chanted, it was hard to think about the words. The mystery of the girl felt like a haze around me, and when I thought about her, Deirdre's face also came to my mind. When I returned to the guesthouse, Edith was sitting up with Marcus, who was amusing her with shadow figures on the wall. The doctor came in after me. How are you breathing? he asked her. He put the herbs on the fire, the air redolent with sage. He checked her pulse. Healthy as a horse, he said, patting her head. Ready to see your mother? Her smile faded. She looked around the room. I suppose. Well, she's most likely very worried, the doctor said. Yes, I must go to her. I didn't think. I didn't think. Marcus put his arm around her. Hush, there now, there's no blame. We must go. You're dry now. We'll float you across the water nice and easy. He helped her up from the mattress, and she took his hand. We went down to the shore where the coracles were beached. It was a short row to the other island, the island to which St. Columba had banished women, a few yards off the shore of Mull. A silver light on the water surrounded it as the mist rose, and it lay silhouetted like a seal on the water. The island was even smaller than Iona, with a rocky coast and no beach. We rode to where the rocks were even with the water and scrambled over the slippery stones to shore. The island was ringed with rocky outcroppings, dipping into a center of green meadow. Marcus went there from time to time on Fridays to help the women. But I had never been there, though I had seen it well enough from the top of Dune E. There was a cry. A tall woman stood on the peak, careering down to us with her arms outstretched. Edith stumbled up the narrow path into her arms. Where have you been, child? she asked between laughter and sobs. I don't know. I must have fallen. I assumed the woman was Edith's mother, but Edith said, Morgan, forgive me. Where is my mother? Morgan held her tightly in her muscular arms. She is inside, as always. We climbed up and over the boulders, down into the green hollow dotted with cows, where five houses were nestled. In the center were gathered a dozen women and an equal number of children, praying in a circle, who shouted when they spotted Edith coming down. The noisy group clamored around them, all trying to hold Edith at once. Morgan 
pulled Edith away. Be still, she must rest. The women shushed the children. The group spread apart and Morgan, her arm around Edith's waist, walked her into the small round house. I followed them in. The house was dark. A low fire burned in the center, the smoke dully rising. The darkness resolved into beds, a bench, stools, pots, and blankets. Morgan let go of Edith, who stepped into a muttering shadow on the other side of the fire. On the bed was a red blanket with a fold in it. The fold was a blade-thin woman, whispering, her thin bare arms clasped in front of her chest, her eyes closed. Mama? Edith said in a timid voice. The muttering grew slightly louder, a prayer, a mixture of the Latin Our Father and Irish calling for Saints Bridget and Kevin. Mama, I'm here. Her mother opened her eyes, large and gleaming with visions of another world. The angels brought you, she whispered. She held out her arms and Edith slid into the bed with her. I'm here, Mama. I fell in the water. Her mother hushed her, stroking her hair. I won't let the sea take you. The angels brought you back just as I prayed. God would not refuse me, not this time. Her bright eyes danced with tears. My treasure, my only treasure. She closed her eyes and hugged Edith tightly. Morgan turned and gestured for me to follow. Outside, she said, Gwyn doesn't always notice that someone is there. You are a new monk? Her gaze was frank and her manner brisk. Yes, I'm Canochtoch. I was the one who found her on the beach across the way. Morgan held out her hand. Thank you. I took her hand and she squeezed mine in a strong grip. Tell me about her. She has a large imagination. It's a small island, I said. Morgan gave me a rueful smile, and I smiled back shyly. Her eyes were a bold lapis blue, and there was a wine stain on her temple, as if God had put his thumbprint on her. I tore my eyes from her gaze. We'll let the children play until dinner she said. I thought Fiona would help, but the flighty woman is off somewhere, of course. Excuse me. She left me. I didn't know where Marcus had gone to. The bell for Tierce was struck on Iona, echoing over the water. One boy was playing with a collection of shells. I went and knelt beside him. The boy turned to me with bright eyes and picked up the shells one by one. This is a periwinkle. This kind, the pretty ones, lives on the rack. 
the seaweed with the big leaves. You turn the leaf over and there they are. But, but this kind, the rough kind, lives on the rocks. This is a dog whelk. Do you see the hole in this mussel shell? The dog whelk drills a hole into the shell and eats the little soft creature. Oh, but, but you must see this. Do you see anything unusual about this? He handed me a spiral univalve shell with a glossy pink mouth. No. What is it? The boy clutched the shell and gestured as if to a classroom. Usually the opening is to the right, but this one is very rare. It opens to the left. This might be the only one you ever see. Behold it. He put it into my hand and I examined it. You know a great deal. Yes, I know all about shells. If anyone has a shell question, they know to come to me. A small girl came running up to us. Here, Brian, she said with a shy smile. She presented him with a brown and white striped shell. Oh, that's fine, Emer, he said, tracing the whorls with his finger. That's a top shell. Thank you. He thanked her with a modest, adult air that was gentle and formal. The girl held her hands behind her back and swayed back and forth, watching him fondly. He nodded to her, and she smiled broadly and ran off. I had a premonition of the boy growing to manhood, undisturbed by female affection, not cold, but diffident, respectful and unrequiting. Brian seemed accustomed to this girl's attentions, and he was friendly, but not familiar. Will you be coming to the monastery to take instruction? I asked him. Brian looked puzzled. Why? Because you have aptitude. Watch. I picked up the shells and made a B with them. That's the first letter of your name. Brian shrugged. That is not the order they go in. He took the bee apart and rearranged them. I think you don't know about shells, he said. The other children ran up to us. Emer, the littlest girl, said, Tell us about the saints. I sat on the ground with them. King Setna dreamt his wife, Ethni swallowed a star, and nine months later, Saint Madoc was born. Emer lay on her back and opened her mouth. Another child said, You'll more likely swallow a bug. She closed her mouth and pulled her knees under her chin. I continued, Saint Mahuda imprisoned a demon in a standing stone and used the monolith as a boundary for his monastery. And you know how we pray, with arms outstretched. Saint Kevin stood in the forest praying, for so long that a small brown bird made a nest in his hand. He stayed there until the chicks were fledged. I told them these stories until a light rain began to fall and Morgan came outside to call us in to eat. The house was smoky from the humid air.
Edith helped Morgan dish out the stewed meat. It seemed that the normal routine was restored, but the children begged Edith to tell what happened, despite the women telling them to be quiet. Edith's eyes met mine. She flushed and gave an embarrassed smile at the group's attention, and said, The seal was as big as a big man, and so black and shining. Its eyes glowed like coals, and it stared into mine so that I was enchanted. It seemed I could hear music, a pipe playing. It seemed to nod and turn its head, and I followed. I was pulled into the water, and I couldn't feel the wet cold waves or the rain as it fell like a curtain. The water parted before me, and I entered it, like entering a house, the house of the changeling seal. It was before me, swimming on, and I swam on, and then the waves started to turn, to spin around, so that down I was pulled toward my watery doom. She stopped and glanced again at me, but I betrayed nothing. But then I heard cries, human cries, of rescue. I heard my mother's voice in prayer calling me back. Someone was carrying me, this dear monk. And I lived to tell you the whole story. As Edith told her story, Gwyn lay on the bed, propped on her elbow, her face lighted by the fire. I could see the resemblance to her brother Jeremiah in her beaky nose, gaunt cheeks, and sallow skin. Her eyes glowed with a weird light. She looked as if she had not been outdoors in a long time. Her light brown hair was well combed, perhaps by Edith, and its thick luster contrasted her hollow, aging face. Now, as she listened to her daughter's animated speech, she beamed, her thin mouth smiling at the fantastic tale. Unlike the children, she wasn't frightened. Unlike Morgan, she didn't frown disapprovingly. She either was happy her daughter had escaped, or enjoyed the entertaining fiction. It was all the same to her. Emer handed Edith a doll. Ethne is afraid. You have to tell her it's all right. Edith took the doll and addressed it tenderly and with confidence. Of course it's all right. The spell is broken now. It lost its chance, and now it will be gone forevermore. Morgan looked up. And it's best to speak of it no more. Her voice was sharp. Edith blushed and then gave the doll a kiss and then kissed Emer, who threw her arms around her. Me too, Gwyn said. Emer brought the doll over for her kiss. Gwyn scooped the little girl into her arms and fell back on the bed. Edith added a turf to the fire, and the sparks danced. When she looked up, our eyes met. The challenge on her face melted into a deep sadness, 
before she turned back to stir the pot. We should go before the tide turns back, I said. You've had enough to eat? Morgan asked. Yes, I've broken my penance. Marcus came inside just then. Edith handed him a bowl of bread and meat. We were about to leave, I said. Of course, just a bite or two, Marcus said. He began to wolf down the food. Another woman entered from outside. She was a plump woman, her blonde hair falling from her hood. You wait early. I was going to help, she said. Fiona, I think your second name is I was going to help, Morgan said. Fiona laughed, not offended. She helped herself to a bowl of food. All is well? Emer said, You missed the story. And it won't be repeated, said Morgan. Fiona sat next to Emer and stroked her hair. Did you help Brian find shells? she asked. Yes, I found a good one. Perhaps Edith brought shells with her from the sea. The room fell silent and uncomfortable. Fiona burst into a laugh. All is well, children, all is well. I'm sorry, Edith, but all is well. I am just so relieved I can only be merry. Edith went and hugged her. Darling Fiona, what would we do without you? Fiona kissed her forehead. Marcus finished eating and set the bowl on the table. It's never dull here. He popped a last piece of bread in his mouth, smiling on Edith and Fiona. I'll walk you back to the boat, Morgan said. And I, said Edith. The children all started to shout that they would go too. Morgan shushed them. No, you must stay and not be darting about everywhere. It's like herding cats with you. We walked across the green, up and over the hill, to the rocky shore where we had beached the boat. Edith stood close to me. I suddenly grabbed Edith's hand. I drew the letters of her name on her palm, spelling it aloud. This is your name, Edith. Her eyes started, and she gaped. It is? I am a scribe at the monastery. Will you teach me? Her face was open and expectant. She would not be denied. I don't know. You can't come to Iona. I doubt I'll be coming here. You can come with Marcus. He has business here, helping Morgan and Fiona. He often comes here most Fridays. I looked at her urgent face. Her eyes were wide and direct in mine, ready to convince me. I don't know. We'll see. I'll pray for it, she said. I patted her head. She pulled away and swung her arms excitedly. Her red skirt billowed out as she danced. I watched her. The evening was fine. A cool, refreshing breeze blew from the sea. The autumn twilight sky, deep blue, with big, 
bonny white clouds. I felt the fineness of the day, and wanted to stay rooted to that spot a long while. But it was time to go. When we were in the boat, I said to Marcus, Where did you disappear to? Marcus shrugged and smiled. Looking at storm damage from the last gale, there is some work to be done. I thought the pixies had taken you. Thank God you found Edith. It would have been the end of her mother. I breathed hard as I rode. What is their story? Edith's father went out to fish one day, two years ago, when a sudden squall came over. He never came back, nor did his body. That was when Gwyn and Edith and Emer came and settled on the island. Edith's mother stays in bed with a kind of madness. I didn't realize that Edith... He hesitated. I found her apron on the beach. I see. We rode in silence for some moments. Is there anything we can do? Should we tell anyone? No, let's not tell. But we'll pray, and God will tell us what to do. A man stood in the water up to his waist as we approached Iona. It was Luke, praying in the frigid water, stock still with his arms outstretched. His sunken eyes were closed, and he was turning blue with the cold, swaying in the waves. The bell was struck for vespers. Luke began to stumble forward, and I rushed into the water to help him, as Marcus beached the boat. Is that the scribe? Luke asked. Yes. I put my arm around Luke, who could hardly walk because of the numbness of his legs. He continued to lean heavily against me to the church. As we walked up from the beach, I noticed for the first time how hard and uneven the path was, exposed rocks in the yellow soil bumpy underfoot. I limped, my uneven gait revealing to me that something was sore in my groin. A new lump. After the chant, we went together to Luke's cell. I wrapped him in his blanket and rubbed his legs. The cat jumped on him and settled on his chest. Luke stroked its white fur, a patch of light in the darkness. Because Luke never burned a lamp, the air in the room was clear and dry. You didn't strike me as having much to repent, I said, referring to his penance of standing in the cold sea. Luke smiled. Sometimes the hunger for salvation rips through me like a bitter wind, and I must quench it. The water felt burning hot to me in my burning passion. Penance is the only relief. 
I sat on the floor next to his cot. Do you understand salvation? Luke asked. I think so. I hesitated before continuing. Today I met a girl who I think is much in need of salvation. She was drowning and we saved her. But I fear she was attempting to take her own life. God forgive me for saying so. Luke gripped my hand and breathed deeply with his eyes closed. After a bit, I thought he had fallen asleep. But then he spoke. Can you save her? I'd like to. But can you? Do you understand salvation? I fear you don't. I thought there was much I could teach the girl, Edith, but I thought it might not be enough. I feel God is calling me to try. A small smile passed over Luke's mouth. I think you should try then. After a pause, he said, At least the girl inspired you to mention God. I came out from Luke's cell to a sharp, groaning wind. Purple clouds lowered in a threatening sky. I studied them, thinking of the inks and paints that would create these colors. The mulberry for mauve, easy to get. The white lead, the azure blue for the sky from crushed lapis lazuli, the only source far away in Arabia. Smoke rose from the great house, and I imagined the monks warm and dry inside. Nihard teaching the boys, the men reading, writing, or doing chores. It seemed distant from me as I stood outside, in this barren landscape. Kayla came out of the kitchen and went to the well, followed by a yellow dog. I joined him, taking a drink of the ice-cold water. Are you getting on? I asked. Aye, I like it here. You don't miss Collins, eh? Kayla shook his head. I always felt a stranger there. Right away I felt I belonged here. I nodded and Kayla returned to the kitchen with a pail of water in each hand, his thin, hard shoulders straight as stretched cords. As I walked to the abbot's house, a light rain began to fall, scattered drops in the wind. I knocked, and when I entered, the abbot was dictating a letter to Jeremiah, his face and hands skeletal in the dim green light. The abbot turned to me with a smile, which surprised me. I sank to my knees, and the abbot motioned for me to rise. Jeremiah set down his stylus and wax tablet, making no move to leave us alone. What do you seek? the abbot asked. 
I wish on certain Fridays to go to the other island. Some of the children could benefit from instruction. Jeremiah clucked his tongue. That is a very odd idea. Why? the abbot asked. I'm concerned about someone there. Someone who needs spiritual guidance. A monk is not a pastoral guide. A monk does not go into the world, Jeremiah said, nodding. The abbot sighed. You seem to want to do everything but the one thing you are here for. I would have said the one thing I was there for was to scribe, but I knew the abbot meant prayer. I'd like to teach the children a bit of the Psalter. It would be good for their souls. I turned to Jeremiah. Edith, your niece, asked me to. She seems very bright. Rizal sighed and tapped his desk. That is a waste of your time. I see no need for such a scheme. Brezal made the gesture of permission to leave. Thank you. Bless you, father. Jeremiah picked up his stylus and stared at me as I left. I could feel his sharp hawk eyes on me as I went out the door. Chapter 10 Teaching Lent didn't increase my suffering. My belly was already always cold with hunger. When it was time for my confession with Luke, I spoke little, though my soul clamoured for answers. My thoughts spun and it was too hard to speak. I wanted to know what sin I had committed to leave my family and come this way and not have my reward, the work of my dreams. Reward was not appropriate, but was punishment? I wanted to ask, and I wanted to expel all these sorrows. But I didn't talk to Luke, or tell him I might be dying. As Easter approached, and the cold ground eased its way from hard to yielding, Jeremiah crooked his finger at me and led me to the abbot's office. When I entered, the abbot smiled at me, but it was a strained smile, as if mixed with misgiving. I knelt. Brizal said, I have a job for you, and you will be pleased by it. You wanted to teach. Brother Leo is going away on a journey to Lindisfarne. You will take over his teaching on Monday through Thursday. Brother Nehard has the boys on Friday and Saturday. My eyes searched the room. At our shadows stretched across the floor. My shadow crouched below his. Are you pleased? he asked. That might be interesting. Thank you, father. 
Brother Leo will be leaving right after Easter. Before he goes, he'll introduce you to the boys. There was still something wrong. I sensed it. Jeremiah cleared his throat and put his hand on the door, but I didn't move. Is there something wrong? I asked. I can't help but feel there is something. Nothing for now, Jeremiah said. I waited. Abbot Bresol bowed his head in thought. Perhaps you should know. The abbot pulled a small sheet of curling vellum from his desk. It had been rolled up. A letter. I received this from Lindisfarne a few days ago. He handed over the letter. The writing was small. There were blotches of ink, as if the writer's hand was shaking. My dear Father Bressal, bless you and pray for us. The room I write this in is half destroyed. White devils, a plague from hell, in ships, have attacked and ravaged our holy home in horrific sacrilege. It is like end times have come upon us. I write in haste and beg you to send us help. I will return with your brothers to tell you more, if words can come. Yours in Christ, Brother Derek. I read it several times. White devils? What can this mean? This is all he wrote? Bresal nodded. We're sending Brother Leo and some others as soon as we can. I haven't decided whether to make this known. Since we aren't certain what happened, Jeremiah said, for now, we'd like to keep this knowledge, such as it is, to the few of us. I handed back the letter. Thank you for taking me into your confidence. If only there were more information. Is it the end times? Is it possible? We must pray and carry on our work. There is nothing else, Bezal said. On Easter, we made the procession around the island at dawn, with Bresal in front carrying aloft a Bible. We stopped at various points, such as the little stone hut St. Columbo would retreat to, chanting at each stop. We took communion. It was March 30, the stone floor of the church cold beneath our knees. The next day, I met the five boys who were taking instruction. Four of them were oblates, committed by their families to become monks at a tender age. The oldest, a big blonde boy, was named Terrain. He was around twelve, and not an oblate. I noted he wore a gold torque, perhaps a gift from an indulgent father. Brother Leo, a hearty, bluff man, whose beard grew heavy between the monthly tonsures, introduced me. They continued the Ars Donatus. One by one, 
The boys stood and repeated the lesson. Brother Leo stood by, silent and watchful. As I looked down at the book to read the next section, I heard a muffled chortle and looked up. Stand, Wraith, said Brother Leo. Wraith stood, hanging his head and holding out his hands. Leo took a step next to him and quickly swatted the back of Wraith's hands with a switch in four sharp blows. Dark red marks appeared across his pale skin. Thank you, brother. Wraith sat down. A bead of sweat trickled down the back of my neck. I continued the lesson with the silent class. Afterward, I walked outside with Leo. I don't know about punishing the boy, I said. Don't be foolish. Besides, they want it, and they enjoy it. They want it? And enjoy it? Brother Leo raised his eyebrows and thought about it. As he thought, he looked more intrigued. Well, I've never thought to analyze it. You've had dogs and observed them? Yes. They seek their leader. Boys are much like dogs, actually, just like dogs. They want to know someone is in charge. I knew I had a doubtful look on my face. The teacher continued. Weren't you ever a boy? Look, have you ever patted a dog and said no at the same time? That's what women do. The dog doesn't know what to do. It makes the dog nervous not to know. The boys want to know you're in charge. The boys aren't happy if they don't know. It makes them happy to know who's who and what's what, and they'll obey. Yes, even if it means thrashing them, it makes them happy. Though it wasn't impossible to understand, I still wanted to object. I looked up at Brother Leo's simple, confident face. Brother Leo gave me a mocking but friendly smile. It must be difficult to go through life having to understand everything. I felt myself blush. Besides, I don't thrash them all that much. Two or three blows at the beginning settle it. I've never caused any permanent damage. When I was young, teachers were much more strict. I'm really very soft, he smiled. My advice is, thrash someone the first day, or for God's sake, at least threaten to, and that will be the end of it. I swallowed back a reply, promising myself I would never hit the boys, and changed the subject. Who is the bigger boy, Terrain? Not an oblate? No, and he is the instigator of any trouble. He was the son of a chief. When his parents died and there was a battle, his uncle sent him here for protection. He will probably return to his land at the head of an army. I hope in the meantime some discipline and holy learning will do him some good.
Within the week, Brother Leo and some other monks left on the journey to Lindisfarne. I felt determined to be a good teacher, as my one legacy. On a typical day, young Tybald was squirming during the lesson. Stop fidgeting, I told him. A few minutes passed, and he squirmed again. Stop it! It happened a third time, and Tybald whispered something under his breath. Stand up! Tybald squeezed back tears and held out his hands. What's wrong with you? Terrain keeps blowing in my ear. Terrain, stand up. Terrain stood. Stay behind when the others go and copy noun declensions. Yes, brother. Thank you. I felt the eyes of the other monks, who were reading and taking notes nearby. Later, Reuben took me aside. You aren't severe enough with the boys, he said. I will teach as I see fit. I didn't feel the need to say I had vowed not to strike them. Perhaps if I had, he could have given me further advice. But I raised my chin in defiance. He looked at me, his expression surprised, affronted. I turned away. The bell was struck for tierce. Inside the church, the air was cool and dark in the winter afternoon. It refreshed me to chant after the tiring hours of the boys. As we left the church, Jeremiah crooked his finger in his usual way. I followed him to the abbot's office, though, to my surprise, Brissal wasn't there. Jeremiah cleared his throat. <clears throat> Marcus is going to the other island Friday. He goes there from time to time to help the women. How well do you know Marcus? I paused. Not very well. We were boys here together. He was attentive. A good scribe. I'd like you to watch over him. As an Amchara? Jeremiah shrugged. If he confesses to you, it would be a good thing. If he is in a state of sin, the abbot should know about it. I looked at the one small window. Jeremiah was reflected in the glass, his bones outlined in green. A confession is a confidential thing, I said. One's sins will be shouted from the rooftops, or at least punished as is fit. I was confused. I doubt I'll find out anything the abbot would care about. He's a busy man. Our souls are his priority. I'm grateful for that. His face was imperious. And I thought how I had been accused of pride. But this was truly the face of pride. Brother Jeremiah, what if... 
the world is ending. What is important? Jeremiah's eyes narrowed, his face suddenly wrathful. Yes, it could be, and for that reason we must be pure. We must be pure to the utmost. You will go with him and watch over him like a good brother and report to me. He made the gesture of thank you, the sign of the cross, and then you may leave. The night before I was to accompany Marcus to the other island, I sat in the refectory watching the other monks reading by lamplight. Gormgal sat at the center of his long, narrow table that partially blocked access to the book cupboards. To his right was a stack of books needing repair, their bindings loose and corners frayed. Beside the stack were his tools, a knife and sharpening stone, coil of gut, jar of glue, box of tacks, a small hammer, all neatly arranged. To his left was his great ledger, where he kept track of all the books lent to the monks and to other monasteries. He opened the ledger and scanned a page with his finger and made a note on his wax tablet, no doubt a reminder to send about returning a book. The doors of the cupboards were covered in thin fretwork, the books like prisoners behind bars. The keys to the cupboards hung from his belt, black and well-oiled, with no rust at all. I wanted to take a children's psalter to the other island. I couldn't ask for it. Gormgal would question me. My students were on to Ars Donatus, not a beginning psalter. I would not receive permission to take the book over there and teach. The bell was struck for Compline, the last chant of the day. The monks rose and filed out, and I waited. Gormgal waited too, by his desk, clearly wanting to leave last. I took a few very slow steps, and Gormgal passed me, his head bowed under his hood. I stopped and watched the monks go ahead, then turned and hurried back into the house. Gormgal had blown out the lamps, but the moonlight through the windows and open door was enough. The psalter was at the end of a shelf near the hinge of the cupboard door. I took the hammer and tapped the pin out of its hinge. Gritting my teeth, I pulled gently on the edge of the door. I slipped my fingers inside and grasped the leather cover of the slim volume. Holding my breath, I traced my finger up the binding, hooking my finger on the thread of gut. I eased it out and slid the pin back into the hinge. I put the book into my wide sleeve and stood for a moment, leaning against the table, feeling light-headed grew darker in the room. 
I thought for a moment I would faint, so nervous and so hungry. A shadow on the floor revealed the outline of a man. Jeremiah stood in the doorway, blocking the light, his bald head outlined in the moonlight. His gaunt face was stark, the triangle shadow of his hawk nose on his cheek, his long chin glittering with straw-colored stubble, his light eyes glinting with curiosity under a questioning brow. I didn't know how long Jeremiah had been standing there watching. I waited for Jeremiah to speak and accuse me as I held my arm bent by my side, the small book at my elbow inside the sleeve. Jeremiah tossed his head impatiently and beckoned. I clasped my hands in prayer in front of my chest and walked toward the door. Jeremiah stepped aside for me to pass, whispering, Come along. What did you want to do? Scribe in the dark like a ghost? It's compline. We both quick-stepped to the church, my hands in prayer under my chin, the little book tapping against my ribs. To be continued.